Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, a special treat. In place of me, you'll have some guest hosts. So I'm going to step aside today and turn it over to two of our great UPR news reporters, Amy Van Tatenhove and Ellis Julin. So Amy and Ellis, take it away. Thanks, Tom. Oh, so hi, I'm Amy Van Tatenhove. And I'm Ellis Julin. Um, today we'll be talking with Darren Perry, the uh, former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and Courtney Kochley, the curator at the Hiram City Museum about uh, the Bear River Massacre and uh, commemorating this event, and how to share sensitive stories like these with a wide audience. Um, Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I love being on this program, so I appreciate the opportunity. Wonderful. Tell our story. We're really excited to have you, and uh, welcome, Courtney. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have Darren here to do a lot of the talking. (laughs) (laughs) We're excited to get to talk with you both. Um, So speaking of, um, Darren, maybe you can start with just kind of giving us the the story of what happened at Boa Agoy um, all those years ago. Yeah, just just briefly, so I don't take the whole time, Courtney. Um, (laughs) You know, our, our people were indigenous to the Cache Valley. This was home and so they lived here not hundreds but thousands of years, and they were hunter-gatherer lifestyle. They needed the resources the valley provided. And in 1856, when uh, Brigham Young sent Peter Mon to settle the Cache Valley, uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end. In so much that you know, the first group of saints came 20 or so, settled in Mon's Fort in Wellsville, uh, not. Not anything to worry about, but years follow, more and more saints arrived, and now you have thousands, and you have cattle, you have fences, you have uh, log cabins, and so the precious resources, the seeds and the berries and fish and the game were were sought after by the pioneers, too, and so there began to be a depletion of the resources, and our people only knew one way to live, and that was the way they'd always lived. Uh, the pioneers knew how to farm and ranch, and, you know, that was an easier way of life as far as having a, a stable form of food. Uh, that and the California and Oregon trails just cut through the north part of the Shoshone area, and so you have thousands of immigrants uh, that didn't understand the Native American ways would come through, and I am sure there were conflicts. Uh, between the Shoshones and other Native groups and those people. And uh, letters started to be written from the Cache Valley from local saints saying, we've got an Indian problem here. Uh, Would somebody come take care of it? And and that's an oversimplification, and I don't want, you know, it was way more complicated than that. But for the most part, that's what kind of led to it. And... So letters went to Salt Lake. A federal judge issued arrest warrants for Chief Sagwich, Bear Hunter, and Pocatello. Uh, the problem was there was nobody really to serve the arrest warrants other than Patrick Connor, who was a colonel at the Camp Douglas. And him and his California volunteers were there, ironically, to watch the Mormons babysit the Mormons and protect the Overland Mail Route. And so they were mustered into service, so to speak, and Connor, before he left Salt Lake, did an interview and said, uh, I, I will go and take these arrest warrants, but I'm not going to arrest anyone. Uh, 
I don't want to deprive my men a little fun of Indian killing. And he knew exactly what he was going to do. He said, we're going to kill them all, get rid of the problem forever, even the children, so they won't grow up to be an adult. And that's what happened. They left on the 27th, and on the morning of January 29th, they arrived at the Shoshone campsite, uh, this winter place where it was always the elders' time to tell stories early in the morning, uh, four feet of snow, zero degrees. Uh, the soldiers suffered a lot by even getting there, but the Shoshones uh, knew they were coming, uh, but You've done. You've worked all year long to save enough to just sit in your teepees and tell stories and play games and visit relatives, and uh, they weren't really expecting much of a fight. And so and that's what the beginning. I mean, that's kind of what started the whole thing. And and you know, I want to cut the, the the Mormon people that lived in the Cache Valley a little slack. The government was moving tribes around at that time. Uh, the Trail of Tears and other things. And when they say, come get rid of the problem, I want to envision that what they meant was, let's move them somewhere and, instead of just slaughtering everyone. And so, you know, we don't know that for sure, but uh, that's what happened. And the California volunteers from Camp Douglas, Utah, attacked the sleeping Indian village in the early morning hours of the day. And we believe at the end of that, in mid-afternoon, more than 400 Shoshones lost their life. Wow. Thank you for for the overview, Darren. Um, kind of goes into my next question. The, the massacre itself has been kind of reframed in the way that the story has been told over the years, originally being called the Battle at Bear River, and now what we refer to as, as the massacre, I think, more accurately um maybe you can talk a little bit about how we have changed the telling of this story over the years and i know you've been an integral part in more accurately representing what occurred that day yeah and that's such an important piece um forever it was called the battle of bear river in fact i kind of point to one thing that probably began to set that change uh in 18 in 1932 the people of franklin county wanted to make a memorial or a monument to what had happened at that site. And so uh, they got together, politicians, religious groups, scout groups, the whole community came together to celebrate and unveil this new big monument that was meant to tell the story of what happened. And uh, I've got a picture of our people uh, a lot of our tribal leaders in full regalia, sitting on this front stage, smiling, and you can see the monument behind them, and it hadn't been unveiled yet, with the plaque. And so, you know, it looked like everybody was having a good time. And I want to believe, and I don't know this for sure, but I want to believe, because I know her, uh, when they unveiled the plaque, unveiled that thing, and we read for the first time how... History wants that episode in history to be remembered. Uh, it talks about the brave soldiers and the brave pioneer women who took care of them. Lost out in the whole narrative is the story of the Shoshone people. It doesn't even mention what had happened to them. And so, 
you know, in the audience that day, there was a 13-year-old girl named May Timbimbu, and she was my grandmother. And she's responsible for everything that's happened since that day. But I am sure she was a product of the boarding schools. She was educated, finished uh, going to Bear River High School, and then LDS Business College got her English degree. She began writing all the stories down. But I want to believe that she read that plaque that day as a 13-year-old, and she became the activist that she was going to be for the rest of her life. I'm sure she read that and was horrified and, and thought to herself, this is how you want a history to be remembered? I don't think so. And then she worked her whole life to change that narrative. She'd been to Washington, D.C. more times than I could count. She testified in Congress and met presidents and senators. And and the National Park Service, like you said, called it the Battle of Bear River. And in 1990, uh, because of a lot, a lot of the work she did and other tribal members did, uh, they changed it to what we now know as the Bear River Massacre. And so I was so lucky to grow up at her feet and hear the stories from her personally. And she'd heard the stories from her grandfather, who was there as a 12-year-old. And so uh, hearing that narrative from the Shoshone perspective is so important because that's what's been lost in this whole thing. And, And when we reframe things and when we call something the Battle of Bear River, we're only getting one side, and one one group is telling the story. And Winston Churchill said, rightfully so, the history is only written by the victors. Well, forever, up until now, you know that story has been told by colonizers and uh, settlers here in the area with good intentions, but they're going to tell the story their way and lost out in this whole thing has been the voice of our people until my grandmother started the conversation. I've just been very blessed to be able to kind of pick up where she left off and continue that story. And she always told me, I'll quit talking. She said, Darren, no, no one, fine. when I was young, Darren, no one has ever wanted to hear our story before. One day you will have to make them listen. And you know what? I've not had to make anybody listen. People are eager to know the truth and to hear both sides. And I think it's time, we're in a day and age now, that uh, it's time that we can talk about the truth without being offended and, and get to the bottom of it. Whether you agree or not, it's important that everybody's views are represented and respected. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's that's really amazing. Um, thank you, Darren, for sharing that. Um, you know, it seems like your grandmother was you know such a force for good and you know bringing the story to light. Um, so, actually, uh, Courtney, I have a question for you. Sort of uh, going off of what Darren was saying. Um, you know, speaking about like telling the story. You know, it's a sensitive story, very traumatic. Um, how how have you told the story at the museum? Um, and you know, can you sort of walk us through what your exhibit is like for you know to give our listeners an idea of what what's there. <laughs> Yeah, I can do that. Um, So the massacre is actually not the central focus of our exhibit, and we never wanted it to be. But you can't talk about the Shoshone relationship to the Bear River without at least mentioning the massacre. Um, Our exhibit kind of goes full circle. We start at pre-massacre and how the Shoshone have lived and used the land for hundreds of years. And then kind of this horrible massacre thing happens. 
they go away, have a really crappy 150 years, and then how this restoration and reclamation is kind of bringing healing and growth. So, yeah, we really don't focus on the massacre. We focus on the relationship to the river and the lifeways prior to the massacre and then discuss what's taken for the tribe to return to the river. The massacre kind of acts as the catalyst for them leaving and eventually converting to the LDS church and somewhat acculturizing to the local culture, Mormon culture. Um, they, I mean, after the massacre, everyone fled. It was winter. The ground was frozen. There's no way to bury the bodies. There's no way to do anything. So the, there was no desire to come back to the river for a while, even though the bodies are still there. It's a sacred site. It means a lot. Um, so back to the exhibit. We I developed it with four sections. The beginning is respite and rejuvenation, which really just talks about the winter camp and life that had continued for hundreds of years. Then uh, the next section is Massacre and Escape, which covers the massacre. It's the smallest section in the whole exhibit because <laughs> we just didn't want to focus on it. Not because it's bad, but just because we wanted... A major exhibit goal is to explain to people that the Shoshone tribe and members, they have been here well before Mormon settlers were here, and they are still here. Like They have an active tribe with over 500 people still living in our communities today. Um, so the third section is adaptation and survival, which covers how the Shoshone were able to sustain themselves after the massacre and adapt and acculturate in northern Utah. And then the last section is kind of my favorite. It's all about the reclamation and regrowth, which focuses on the purchase of the massacre site, giving them unrestricted access to the land, which is insane that the tribe had to buy land that was once theirs to commemorate this massacre and event. Um, and the reclamation of the land with the restoration project, planting native species, building an interpreter center, and kind of having ownership of their own story for the first time. Um, one thing with developing this exhibit is we don't have any Shoshone artifacts in our collection. Um, it's a gap we know that we really want to fill. So we ended up, we before we even began developing this exhibit, we talked with the tribe and we talked with Darren and kind of said, hey, we have this opportunity to develop this exhibit. Can we do it? Are you okay with, can we tell your story for you, like with your input? And it just all along, it's been a partnership. But when we were trying to think of objects and ways to tell this story, so it's not just photos and text, we reached out to Darren asking, hey, can we like buy some Shoshone artifacts from someone, like some actual beadwork or anything? And that's when Darren lent us some objects. And he was really good about pointing us in the direction of certain photos that we might not have found on our own in various archives. Wonderful. So, this sounds like a banger of an exhibit. <laughs> um, so we're going to go to a break in just a minute. But um, before we do that, um, can you just uh, give me an overview of some of the artifacts that are uh, um, in your exhibit? <laughs> so it's a smallish exhibit compared to, like, you know, normal big exhibits. So Darren actually lent us. It's this beautiful beaded necklace. It's huge. It's like the size of a book, like a book face. Um, and it's blue beaded. And it, Darren told us May made it. And so it's, we use it to kind of talk about, uh, what do we talk about with the label of that one? I really should have reread that before <laughs> I came on the air. But just um, the symbols of the tribe, which the mountain rose is a very distinctive symbol of the Northwestern Shoshone and just the importance of beating over the years like it was an activity and then after um, the massacre it kind of became a way 
for the tribal members to sustain themselves, they'd be beating and bartering their goods for food. And then one of our board members actually loaned us a pair of Shoshone gloves that he found in the 1940s just in the road in Hiram. <laughs> because, and he knew the story. I've, he would always talk about Shoshone members coming to town and trading goods for to farm and get food just to try to sustain themselves through the 40s. Wow. Um, and then one thing we have real fast, is, and Darren pointed us to this because it's in the LDS Church Archives, and it's a photo of Chief Sagwich and his wife, Biwochi, and their combined children and family, and it's just this amazing photo of all of them in-house, and it's about the time in the 1870s when they went down to the endowment house and converted to Mormonism. Wow. And we're very thankful Darren found that for us because it was actually misidentified as a Ute family. Oh. oh, well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you've got some amazing artifacts there as well. So um, very cool. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll uh, be back in a couple minutes, and um, we'll talk some more about the museum and Bo Ogoy and, you know, what's what goes along with telling stories like this. So. Support for UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. More information at idrpp.usu.edu. Support also comes from Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science, presenting hard choices, being a robot in a human world by USU computer scientist Mario Harper, January 28th at 7 p.m. in the Eccles Science Learning Center, and online via AggieCast at usu.edu slash unwrapped. A growing chorus is urging you to stop hating what you see in the mirror and be body positive. But what if moving from hate to love is just too big a leap? I think of body positivity as loving your body no matter what, and body neutrality, which I actually prefer, is more about honoring your body just because it exists and deserves to be cared for. I'm Anita Rao. Join me for Becoming Body Neutral, a special from Embodied in North Carolina Public Radio. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Access Utah. I'm Amy Van Tatenove here with Ellis Julin, and right now we're talking with Darren Perry, the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and Courtney Cochley, a curator at the Hiram City Museum, to explore their newest exhibit, Commemorating the Bear River Massacre, and how to share sensitive stories like these with a wide audience. Uh, Darren and Courtney, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. So before we went on our break, Courtney, um, you were kind of talking about the focus of the museum on telling the stories of the Shoshone people and them being in this area since time immemorial and now the rich culture that they still have today with the, the tribal members that are still here today. And Darren, maybe you can talk a little bit about the importance of I think oftentimes we're taught in the the history of the victors as it's been written of the indigenous communities that lived in an area before we lived there or the settlers came there. And then it's kind of talked about as a past thing and as something that has happened and these people kind of no longer exist. And, and maybe you can speak to a little bit of the importance of talking about the fact that your people are still here. And despite the atrocities that occurred at this massacre, you still have this rich culture and you're out here telling these stories and and keeping alive the memory of your grandmother and everyone that came before her. Um, 
yeah, maybe you can just kind of tell us some of the involvement you had with this museum exhibit and um, and the ongoing work that's being done to continue the Shoshone experience today. Well, I uh, it's it's been important to me to always tell the story, and so I think the year before COVID really shut a lot of things down for us. I visited seventy elementaries in one year, wow. and, and mostly fourth graders because that's Utah history. But I take artifacts and I talk to them for an hour about Shoshone culture and history and the group of people that lived where their homes are at today, because most of it was in northern Utah. So it was so important to me to let them know and and you know I ask questions and they'd look at me and. They're looking at me like, you're really an Indian? Where's your braids? <laughs> would be one big question. And so, you know, Hollywood has done a really good job of portraying Native Americans as we all rode horses and we all chased buffalo, uh, the Plains Indians. And, and that's been really captured quite well by Hollywood. And I think a lot of our young children look at Native Americans in that light. We just They just don't know. And so... Um, it's it was so important to me and my grandmother to make sure that people know we're still here, how resilient we've been and how the descendants are here trying to make a living and and uh, working hard every day like our, like our ancestors did. And uh, that's a really vital key for me. And unless I'm out there telling the story, I don't think uh, people will find out. And so I've worked hard every day to I never turned down a speaking opportunity and never uh, will always jump at the chance to speak to one person or 50 people. It doesn't matter to me because it's all about education and all about telling the story from the perspective of the Shoshone. And so what I love about the Hiram Museum, and I live in Avon, so I live in the south end of Cache Valley today, close to Hiram. But I love the job that Jamie and Courtney have done and and I love how they reached out and said, you know, here's what we want to do, and uh, how can we work together to make this possible? You know, partnerships like that, where you're collaborating and you're talking, it is a big deal, and especially to Native Americans. I, I've told Courtney and Jamie a lot, and we've gotten there over the years, and we're dear, dear friends now, but uh, I tell them, if you want to work with native communities, uh, you're going to have to develop a certain amount of trust and that trust might take time. But I think that's true in every relationship we have in our life. So, but Jamie and Courtney have taken the time to, uh, really spell out what they want to accomplish there and how they want to do it and how they could use our input to accomplish that. And once, you know, you develop that trust and know they're going to do it, uh, because it's the right thing to do, and they want your input, and they want uh, you along in every step of the way, then it becomes uh, really easy to do. And, you know, I will always work with them to develop whatever we can, because I know they have our best interests at heart. They want to tell our story. And it's just one more avenue uh, and way for people to learn about the Shoshone that are here without me going directly to them. But their exhibit is wonderful, and everybody would uh, benefit by seeing it. 
but uh, yeah, it's just important that we get out and and make our presence known, and then work with the local communities we're in to uh, share our story in a good way. But that's really wonderful that you have you know this outlet to share your story that you're comfortable with. Um, you know, I, f- I feel like that's so important. Um, so sort of le- leading into one of our next questions, um, you know, I feel like there's been a significant amount of pushback against teaching, you know, these traumatic stories of, you know, especially like black and indigenous history to the public. Um, and, you know, do you have an idea why there's so much vitriol associated with teaching these, like the history of these <laughs> events? Or, you know, um, can you tell us a little bit about that from your point of view? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I have a theory on it, but I'll, I'll, let me give it a stab. <laughs> I I don't think we were here in this space five to eight years ago. I just can't remember it being so divisive like it is today. And I mean, I have my own theory on that, and I'm not going to share it today. <laughs> but <laughs> let's keep it non-political today. But I think, and, and this is true on both sides, whatever side of the aisle you kind of find yourselves, I think... Uh, both sides have been kind of hijacked by the extremism in these groups. And what they've done is I, I think they've taken history and they've taken certain things and they've weaponized it to really make it look way worse than it is. And But you know what? I've never felt that. I, I feel like the majority of us aren't on the edges of those extremes. And I think the vast majority of us reside in the middle space and where we can actually talk about things without feeling threatened or weaponized, the the subject. And so I have never, I've always been able to share the story of the massacre, which is brutal uh, with with people. Even, uh, and I keep it age appropriate to who the group I'm speaking to, but I think it's okay to talk about hard things. I think what's not okay is when you talk about hard things and then you beat them over the head with it and throw the guilt factors in there and and say you owe us because of it. And so my message has always been, let's talk about hard things. And, and by hard things, let's just talk about what happened. I mean, <laughs> I'm not making up hard things. I'm just Let's just talk about what happened because I think there's lessons in there that we can learn that will help us today. But I think the key for me, and maybe it's just for me, is we can talk about it and then towards the end say, how can we take this event and and make it work for all of us and make this world a better place? What can we do together now, knowing that there's been things in the past that aren't great? How can we learn from them and how can we make this world that we live in a better place to live for everybody? And it really starts with being able to listen and hear and hear somebody else's perspective that is different from your own without getting upset. That's easy to that's easier to do when the other group isn't just constantly loud and in your face about it and holding you accountable for it. I think there just needs to be room for people to take the information in and then process it and without you, you know, still hitting them over the head with it. And I think that's really worked for me uh, in this respect. And I haven't had any pushback as far as telling hard history and stories. And 
I'll be in Boise Thursday night talking about hard things, and I'm going to take them right on the edge of being really uncomfortable, but then bring them back to what can we do together to make this world a better place? Because that's where we really need to be. None of us can change the past. But what we can do is we can work together to make the future better, and that's what the focus should be. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Darren. I think your words ring very true. Well, and I think that your greatest strength, Darren, is your ability to sit down and talk with anyone. And I think because you aren't employing some of the the tactics you were talking about of of beating people over the head with it or guilt-tripping people, you're able to have these conversations and get this story out there and build these sorts of partnerships like you have with with the museum. And I know all of us here in Cache Valley are lucky to have you as this resource and to get to hear these stories from you and that you take the time to to educate and re-educate all of us as often as you do. So for people just tuning in, we're joined by Darren Perry, the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and Courtney Coachley, a curator at the Hiram Museum. Um, I just realized we forgot to reintroduce you both after the break. (laughs) So thank you both for being here. Um, Courtney, a quick question for you. Um, You're hosting the Back in Time event with children about Bo Agoy um, and and the Shoshone Nation. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and how you've used the exhibit or kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of change the exhibit and the messaging to be more child-friendly and good for that kind of an audience? <laughs> yes. Well, our Back in Time children's programming is our monthly activity that runs um, throughout the school year, so September through May, and um, it's geared more towards kind of preschool-age kids, but we draw on a lot of homeschoolers because it takes place during the school day, so older kids, um, you know, are in school. So we try to plan the programming based on historic events or themes that are happening at times, so we usually t- tell Shoshone stories in January. Next month, we're talking about Lucille Bankhead defending African-American rights in Utah um, because it's Black History Month. We also try to try this programming into our second Saturday events, which happen on the second Saturday of each month, where we do themed um, events and activities at the museum to drive intentional visitation. So this month, we actually had Darren come and speak about the future of Boa Ogai and what's going on with the land restoration and that aspect of the site. Um, But so for this, we... this. This specific one with the Bow Guys Beauty, we're actually focusing a little bit more on the land restoration um, and the importance of beavers to ecosystems and cleaning water with their dams and all of that. Um, but in the past, we have last year, our back in time programming was still all virtual. And our director, Jamie Van Huss, is probably going to kill me for this because she doesn't like being on the <laughs> thing. But we recorded them all and they still live on our YouTube channel. And Last year, we actually did talk about the massacre, and I just point people to that because the way she explains it for children is so empathetic, says what happens, doesn't gloss over it, but also isn't like, oh, they were slaughtering all the children. It's it, it's just very well presented, and that's on our museum's YouTube channel and our Facebook. And it It's just a way to approach it. I can't even explain how she does it because it was just amazing, and I've made my kids watch it. Anytime they come home from school telling me, things that they did not learn appropriately about the Shoshone's as well. I'm like, no, here, watch this. you got to learn about these people this way again. So it, children are, they have, 
so much more understanding than people give them credit for. And they're empathetic. They don't have to unlearn things that they've grown up with. Like, they're a clean slate. We are unintentional, or not unintentional, are like, one of our goals at our museum is to teach people the Shoshone story and make sure every kid that comes to our museum leaves knowing that the pioneers were not the first people that lived in Cache Valley, because most of them don't know that. Yeah, I mean, I know my education growing up omitted a lot of important things. <laughs> yes, same here, same yeah. here. Yeah, I, I'll be the first to admit I have a lot of rewriting history to, to I'm sure, still be done in my own understanding of the world. Um, Darren, kind of backpacking off of what Courtney was talking about, how do you um, revisit sensitive history like this in a way that makes it approachable and um, enables children to interact with that and think about this? I know you were talking about going to elementary schools earlier. Well, you know, I kind of relate to them and say, you know, bad things sometimes happen to us in our life. And and sometimes we'll go through hard things and things that are not always planned. And, and you know, I think every kid would have a story of something that's been hard for them in their life. And and I just kind of relay it to the Shoshone experience and and talk about how they lived and, and the storytelling with their relatives. And, and then we just talk about something bad that happened to them and a misunderstanding and and then how that didn't define them and how we can go through hard things in this life and not have it define us. In fact, just uh, maybe learn from it and grow. And so I always try to use that as a teaching opportunity to make sure that they understand that we're all going to go through some difficult things and and how we respond to them will determine our character and probably determine where our life goes from there. And so it's so important to me to to talk to them about, and I don't use the word, but resiliency and uh, like that, I try to explain it on terms that they would understand that how uh, resilient the Shoshone people were and are and how we've adapted and how the government has really tried to, if not annihilate us, change us, assimilate us, and and but we're still here and we're still working hard every day to try to keep our languages alive and, and teach our children the culture. But, you know, I, I tell people the most successful native Americans today are those who can best balance culture and change. And, you know, as a tribal leader, I've got to make sure our youth are uh, prepared to live in this world that they live in so they can change and succeed with it all the while retaining that tribal culture and their identity and who their ancestors were and where they came from. And so uh, that's a story for all of us, no matter who we come from and where our ancestors lie. All of those things resonate with everyone. And it, so that's a story that, you know, everybody can uh, has in common and they can relate to. Yeah, I love that. And um, we actually have to take a break, but we'll be back in just a few minutes to keep telling these kinds of stories with, um, with Darren and Courtney, who we're so lucky to have on today's show. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. 
Support also comes from Utah State University Extension, who recently launched Ag Wellness, a program that addresses mental health needs of Utah farmers and ranchers. More information available at extension.usu.edu. On this week's Eating the Past, I talk about a meal that changed my life. Can one meal alter the whole direction of your life? 30 years ago, I traveled to Mexico for the first time. While on a study abroad, I sat down to a meal of muk bilpollo. When I got up, I was following a wholly new life path. Find out about muk bilpollo, how it's repaired, and a little about its history and my own for this week's episode. Join us Sunday at noon for Eating the Past, right before the Splendid Table, on your UPR station. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll search for La Dolce Vita in post-war Italy and take a side trip for some fun with Italian music for kids. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Vintage Italia, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. to Access Utah. I'm Ellis Julin, guest hosting today's episode with Amy Van Tatenhove, and we're joined by Darren Perry, the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and Courtney Coachley, a curator from the Hiram Museum. We're talking about the Bear River Massacre at Boagoy and the museum's exhibit remembering that event and um, the Shoshone people who have been here for thousands of years. So welcome back, uh, Darren and Courtney. Um, so yeah, let's let's continue this conversation. Um, so uh, Darren, I actually um, have another question for you, uh, kind of following up uh, what Courtney was talking about about you know how to share these stories with children um, and you know other sensitive um, you know sharing these sensitive stories. Um, so this also you know sort of focuses on you know media outlets as well. Um, you know, I guess I guess in your your thoughts, like how do we bring light, you know, bring to light these stories, you know, these really traumatic, really you know sensitive stories, um, you know, that involve death or you know other other you know very traumatic happenings without sensationalizing or capitalizing on that trauma um, that happened during these events? Because I know, especially as media outlets, um, that can be a real problem. Yeah, it is a problem, and. and- that gets hard, and it's complicated. I mean, I wish I had the, the correct answer, but I think the thing that really works for me and what the museum really is highlighted in their exhibit is we just don't concentrate on the, the terrible thing and death. I mean, it's and I'm glad it's the smallest part of the exhibit here in Hiram because it should be. It, it was one event over... Uh, a long period of time. And so I I think what's more important and what we really need to focus on is making sure that uh, the the whole story is told. Uh, Because most of the good stuff and most of the the stuff that people really want to know about is the history and the culture. And so that's what I really try to, to... talk about, and I know it's not really answering your question, but uh, <laughs> focusing on the negative or the death part, you need to say it and you need to mention it and sure. not skirt away from it and take as much time as you need to. But I think the story for us as a people 
the Shoshone people is that was one tragic event uh, and a long uh, continuum of of history, and but it doesn't define us. It's something really terrible that happened. The actions of the ancestors uh, is what should define us. And I'll tell you, if, if my message out there today was loud and angry and and this community of mostly Mormon people owe us because their ancestors perpetrated uh, one of the largest massacres of Native Americans in the history of this country, I think I would be accepted completely different here in the Cache Valley. And, but but I'm not. And it's just just how you approach it. And uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Bear River Massacre, Shoshone History. That's not what I would have entitled the book. That's what the publisher wanted to come up with because it's sensational and it's it's you know, the hard-hitting stuff. And out of all the chapters, there's only one small chapter on the massacre. And everything else is the history before and the history after and the history today and what we're doing at the site to restore the land to what it looked like and tell the story of our people. So um, it's, it's important that we cover the death part and do so in a very respectful way. But uh, we shouldn't stay there, I guess. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think that brings a lot of dimensionality to your story, um, you know, not just focusing on the death or the trauma. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so, Courtney, um, I guess, you know, as a little follow-up question, you know, from your view, you know, because you're a museum curator and you're the one putting these exhibits together, um, do you also have a way to share these stories, you know, without capitalizing on, you know, the death or the trauma? Um, yes, I was thinking about that while Darren was talking Museums aren't in the field to be sensational. We are there to ask questions and make people think differently about events, especially historic events. So rather than telling someone, this tree is green, it's a, here's a tree, what what do you notice about it? What color is it? Um, so we, we don't, we, we try to get people to empathize and feel, and that's truly what interpretation is, which is how you explain things in museums and educate in museums. And so we we talk about the massacre, we talk about the death that happened and give some numbers, but really it's in a context of interpretation and analysis to get the visitors to take something away from it that they didn't before, maybe get them to look at things in a different way. And so that's a very different perspective than necessarily like, a publisher who needs to sell books or media who needs to have higher ratings or whatever and be as sensational as possible. It's we really are there to educate and help visitors gain as much experience as they can as possible. And this is something that's been studied lately um, in a post COVID world where there's so much false media and news and fake news out there. Museums have become one of the most credible sources of information in the eyes of the public. There are studies done that just things that people read in museums, they tend to trust that a little more. And that's because we don't push an agenda beyond education. We are um, in the middle. We, we don't take sides. We sometimes do talk about controversial topics, but not in a way where we're saying, you're going to go away and you're going to understand and believe this thing. It's a, here's some information. 
you take away from it what you want, and hopefully we'll have got them to see things in a new way, ask a question they hadn't thought of before, and learn something new. That's really interesting. Um, you know, just thinking about how how to, I guess, teach people without, you know, pushing these ideas on them and, you know, sort of letting them incorporate those ideas into their own view and, you know, kind of like going back to what Darren was talking about, you know, not beating them over the head with, with a certain, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I think, I think we're all... There's a whole thought process involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just like you touched on Courtney in the time of a post COVID world, we're all hungry for information in a antithesis of sensationalized way. Um, and just having the museum presenting stuff like this is so great. So, Darren, I've we've been talking about telling the story of this massacre, and and then but telling all of the other stories of the the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone, and we've kind of mentioned some of this restoration work. You've touched on it. Courtney has too. Um, happening at Bo Goy today, but I'd like to use some of the rest of our time, um, however brief it may be. I don't know how it's been almost an hour. Um, but <laughs> to talk about the work that's happening at Boagoy today, the the restoration project that you and so many collaborators are a part of and the future of this site and what that kind of means for, for the Northwestern Band of Shoshone people. Yeah, well, in 2018, we purchased uh, all of the land that, that we're talking about today. And one of the first things I wanted to do was, you know, let's build an interpretive center to tell the story of the people. But equally as important to tell the story of the people is to tell the story of the land, which includes the plants and the animals and uh, the water. Um, because my grandmother always said they are equal to us. She always called out the animal kinfolk, which means they're, they're our relatives. Yeah. And so uh, one of my first visits after we purchased the land was at the to the Quinney School of Natural Resources at Utah State University. And I, I sat down with a couple of professors there and said, here's what I want to have in, in mind. I want to return the land to what it looked like in 1863 with the plants that would have been there and and get rid of the invasive species. And is that doable? And the two of those two and myself, uh, Chris Lukey and Mark Brunson and I, went on a walk one day at the massacre site, taking notes of what plants should be there and what plants shouldn't. And they said, absolutely, this is doable. And we know what plants are here because one thing about the, the Mormon people, they write everything down. And so uh, we, we know what was here and what should be here and what shouldn't be here. And so those first initial meetings was really what got us started and where we're at today. Now we're millions of dollars into it, and the restoration work has actually taken off uh, faster than the building just because there's so much grant money out there to help restore uh, land and other things. And so, man, we've developed partnerships with Utah State University is is above and beyond uh, our best friend in this, and have, so many people have helped collaborate with us to... Uh, take out Russian olives. The Utah Conservation Corps was there for a month, living on site in tents, taking out Russian olives and transforming that landscape. We've got people in the water quality department working on restoring a watershed. I mean, we're reintroducing beaver to that ecosystem, 
helping farmers maybe look at the way they've farmed and maybe do it a different way to keep the water clearer so we can reintroduce the Bonneville cutthroat trout in the Beaver Creek. And so there's so many moving parts to this with so many different partnerships. But we're trying to tell the story of the land and heal the land in a way that uh, we can live a more sustainable uh, life. And so that's that, the restoration of the land is really a big thing right now. And it will be ongoing if people want to can get in touch with us and they want to donate some time in the spring. We'll be planting other things, willows and cottonwoods and other things to really help restore that too. So we're excited about it. Wonderful. That That's really amazing to hear. Um, you, you mentioned um, people getting in touch with you about uh, the, the restoration. Um, how, how can people get in touch with you? Well, they can email me uh, or call me. I mean, I don't care if you call me. And Utah State University, the Professor Sarah Klein, uh, she's at the Quinney School in Natural Resources. She'd be a good person to reach out to. And uh, Will Munger is a good person, too. But they, they can get hold of Utah State and the Natural Resources Department. And I think we've got a volunteer list up there that uh, people can start getting involved with. So that would be the easiest Darren, way. Awesome. Darren also has a website. It's boaogai.com or .org. It's .org. It has inform- <laughs> it's .org. 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 It's boaogai.org. B-O-A-O-G-O-I. And um, it has information about the Interpreter Center and all of Darren's contact information and a way to donate to the tribe and their work they're doing. Wonderful. I'm a terrible fundraiser, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for bringing that up. I was just wondering, I was thinking to myself, doesn't he have a website? But <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes. So, um, unfortunately, we are out of time. This hour flew by, um, but we just really, really wanted to thank you both for being here. Um, this is a wonderful conversation. So, Darren, thank you so much for joining us on our show this morning. My pleasure. Um, and, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And, again, I'm Amy Van Tatenhove. I'm Ellis G. Lynn, and thanks for listening, and thank you both again for joining us. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The colonization of northern Utah's Cache Valley escalated tensions that led to the horrific 1863 massacre of Shoshone people at their winter camp on Bear River. This week, learn how the Shoshone have returned to the river and are reclaiming it as a healing ground for the future. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. For hundreds of years, the banks of the Bear River along the Utah-Idaho border provided good winter camping for the northwestern band of the Shoshone Nation. Known to them as Boa Ogai, the winter's hot springs offered warmth and renewal, and winters were relaxing and joyful. But that peace was upended when federal troops invaded the camp on January 29, 1863, and killed everyone they encountered. Shoshone Chief Sagwich awoke early that morning. He watched what he thought was mist rising over the riverbanks before realizing that it was an approaching army. These were federal troops led by Colonel Patrick Connor from Camp Douglas in Salt Lake City. 
Connor knew where to find the Shoshone, since this spot on Boa Agai was a favored winter camp. By day's end, the soldiers slaughtered between 350 and 500 men, women, and children during what was the deadliest massacre of Native people in the American West. The riverbanks of Boa Ogai became a site of horror. Frozen ground and fear of returning soldiers prevented the few survivors from properly burying their dead. They threw bodies into the river rather than leave them for animals and the elements. Forced to flee their ancestral lands to survive, Sagwich led his remaining people away from Boa Ogai to seek safety elsewhere. The site remains a sacred burial ground to the victims lost in the massacre. In the years that followed, the story of the so-called Battle of Bear River was told only from the soldiers' perspective. But we now know that this was no battle, and the Shoshone fought for years to tell their own story on their own land. In 2018, the tribe purchased the massacre site and is building an interpretive center and restoring native plants and habitat. Reclaiming this hollowed ground provides some healing and hope to a site previously associated with horror and anger. The Bear River Massacre was a cataclysmic event that forever changed the Northwestern Band's association with Boa Ogai. But today, their efforts to reclaim its riverbanks once again are a testament to the resilience and perseverance of the Shoshone people. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Hiram City Museum. Find sources in past episodes at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.